Well, I had my own 911 experience. It happened uh, September the 11th in 2008. I had just uh, a couple of months prior had finished running a marathon, 26.2 miles. And then I had another marathon a couple of months out scheduled to run in San Antonio, Texas, another 26.2 miles. And while I was training and preparing and getting ready, uh, I, I read a story about how this world-class marathoner died of a heart attack during a marathon. So I said, if a world-class marathoner died of a heart attack, I better go get myself checked out. So I didn't have any, feel any problems or anything, but I just, I was like, listen, I need to get myself, make sure I'm straight. And so I went to the doctor and when I went to the doctor, he did what doctors normally do on a regular checkup. He checked my vital signs and my blood pressure and my cholesterol. He did all, he said, pastor, your blood pressure's fine. Your cholesterol's fine. Everything looks good. Your vitals are good. And I said, okay, I'm great running this marathon. He said, I know you, you look good. Everything is fine. Then he said, but I'm gonna take a little blood from you. I want to do a blood test. I want to get some blood work done on you. He said, I should have the, the results in a couple of days. So I'll call you in a couple of days with the results of the blood test. So the next day I went and ran 10 miles with some friends and, and they celebrated my good report from the doctor. We were just praising God for my health and strength as we ran 10 miles. I'm preparing for this marathon. A couple of days later, the doctor did call me. He said, I did, I did your blood work and these numbers. I don't like what I'm seeing. I'm gonna send you to a specialist. I, I want you to go and, and, and check this out uh, because you may have cancer. And I did go to that specialist and he did uh, check me out. And he called back in a couple of days and he said, Mr. Johnson, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have prostate cancer. And I had felt no issues and no pain. Well, let me say this too, because I'm not telling you this story so you could feel sorry for me because I had prostate cancer because I, I stand before you cancer free. God is a deliverer. He is Jehovah Rapha. He's the God that heals and he healed me. And, but I tell you this story because I had no issues, no problems, no pains, no signs of anything. And I just went to the doctor because I was getting ready to run a marathon and the doctor checked my blood. And because he checked that blood work, I went on and got checked out further, found out I had cancer, had my surgery, got delivered. But the only reason I'm standing before you delivered right now and healed right now was because of that blood work. That blood work revealed what was going on and led me to the deliverance I needed to have. Here's what the Holy Spirit told me. That if human blood can reveal things and help to remove things, how much more shall the blood work of Jesus bring the salvation that you and I need in our life? And so that's what I want to talk about on today. I want to talk about the blood work of Jesus. And I want to look at that from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And in Hebrews chapter 10, that 19th verse, this is from the New Living Translation. Listen to what God's word says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah to the lamb. The, the blood work of Jesus. It was when God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses, uh, through those plagues that God sent, were able to deliver more than two million people out of bondage. Brought them through the Red Sea. And now moving from bondage in Egypt to freedom in Canaan, but it was a 40 year trip. 
And during that time, the people of God lived in tents. And so they would live in those tents. And then when it was time to move, they'd break those tents down and move to another area and then build those tents back up. But they didn't just live in tents, but God had a tent. God had his tent placed away from the camp of the Israelites. It was called the tabernacle, the tent of meetings. And in that tent, there was a section called the holy place. And in the holy place, every day, the priests would be in there sacrificing animals and shedding the blood of animals for the sin of people. So people would come with a calf, a lamb, a sheep, a cattle, and they would slay that animal and that animal would bleed out because blood is the visible sign of life. And they would do that in the holy place for forgiveness of sin. Then there was this huge veil, this huge curtain that was there. And on the other side of the curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple. And only the high priest could go beyond that, that curtain to the holy place, into the holiest place, into the presence of God. And once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would make his way beyond that curtain into the presence of God, shed the blood of a goat for the forgiveness of sin. And I know you're wondering, why is all this shedding of blood of animals so important? Well, one of the things it does, it shows us the seriousness of sin. That from the viewpoint of God, sin is so serious until every time somebody sins, something has to die. That's why those priests were in the holy place in different sections every day with people bringing a sacrifice and shedding that blood because of the seriousness of sin. When somebody sinned, something had to die. Once a year, that high priest would go beyond that curtain in order to shed the blood of that goat because whenever there is sin, something has to die. It shows the seriousness of sin. No wonder even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. That sin separates us from God. That, you know, people sometimes think that when we sin, when we operate outside the will of God, that God is going to come down and God is going to punish me because I operated outside his will. Yo, when we sin, God doesn't have to come down and do anything with us. Sin pays his own wages. The wages of sin is death. Sin has his own penalty. When somebody sins, something has to die. The word of God teaches us where there is no shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sin. So the word of God is teaching you and I, we cannot take sin lightly. I believe that's one of the issues in the 21st century. But somehow we just take sin lightly. One reason we take it lightly because we don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear a preacher speak of sin, a minister talk about sin. We don't want anybody calling our actions sin because we take sin lightly. We say things like, well, I'm only human. Everybody makes mistakes. I'm only human. Everybody has a weakness. I know I messed up, but God knows my heart. One thing I've learned all of these years in ministry is when somebody says, but God knows my heart, one of two things is, is taking place. One, they just did something outside the will of God. Or two, they get ready to do something outside the will of God. And y'all, God does know our heart because our habits reveal our heart. Jesus said, it's not that which goes into a person that makes them polluted, defiled, unclean. It's that that comes out of them because it comes out of the heart. Yeah, God does know our heart. Because our habits 
reveal the kind of heart we have. Y'all, there is a seriousness to sin, so much so that when something, when anybody's saying something has to die, that's why Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. It says in verse 19, because he shed his blood for us. It's the blood work of Jesus. And watch what takes place right after that in verse 20. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. That Jesus, his blood, he went into the heavenly holy of holies and shed his blood. And with that blood work of Jesus, it opened a new way. It provided for us a new way that we get because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. No wonder the apostle Paul says, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. No wonder Jesus talked about a new life. When Jesus sat down to have that last supper with his disciples before he went down the cross, he took some bread and broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. It represented the broken body of the Lord. Then he took wine and he said, take this and drink it because it represents, Jesus says, the new covenant in my blood, the new relationship that we have that is in my blood. So what we get with the blood work of Jesus is a new way. We become new creations. We get new life. We have this new covenant, this new relationship with God, because there was an old system that was in play. Remember, sacrificing a calf, a cattle, sheep, a lamb, sacrificing a goat. That was the old system. But now we have a new system. Matter of fact, it says that the old system in the Old Testament was a shadow for the new system that would come with the substance in the New Testament. So the shedding of blood with the old system was really a shadow of the substance of the shedding the blood of Jesus with the new system that comes with the sacrifice that he made. He says it was a, it was a, a, a dim view. It was, a, uh, it, it was a silhouette. It's a shadow. It's a, a incomplete image. It's a shadow of the real thing that was to come in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a new system now. The old system was the blood of animals. The new system is the blood of Jesus. The old system, that's a shadow, but the new system with Jesus, that's, that's the substance. The old system with the blood of animals, that was ritual, but the new system with the blood of Jesus is real. The old system with the blood of animals was external, but the new system with the blood of Jesus is internal. The old system with the blood of animals was outward, but the new system with the blood of Jesus is inward. The old system with the blood of animals, it was temporary, it's temporal, but the new system with the blood of Jesus is eternal. It's forever. I'm so glad that Jesus gave us a new way. And it's not just a new way, but in Hebrews 10 and 20, it also says it's a new life. It's a new life giving way. There is no life without Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood so that we can have a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus, with God through his, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And without Jesus, we have no life. This, the new life comes because of the blood work of Jesus. There is no life without Jesus. It really hurts my heart 
that people try to find life in cars and cash and clothes and condominiums and creature comforts and the things of the world. And, you know, all this stuff is wonderful, but it offers no real life. It is, it's, there is no life without Jesus said this. What does it profit a man if they, if he gains the whole world, but then lose his soul? Or what would you give in exchange for your soul? Because it's a new life, but it's only in Jesus. There is no life outside of Jesus. Uh, Some of us, man, we're going to spend our entire existence trying to climb the ladder of success. And at the end of our existence, we're going to find out that ladder has been leaning on the wrong building. There is no life outside of Jesus. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The apostle John says, he that have the son has life. He that does not have the son of God does not have life. There is no life outside of Jesus. That old system with the animal's blood was a shadow that pointed to the new system, the new covenant, the substance that we have in Jesus. Don't, don't get so caught up in the shadow that you miss out on the substance in, in verse one. It says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview, a dim preview. Yeah, it's like when we talk about movies and they show a preview to a movie or a trailer to a movie. When we look at a preview or trailer, we don't say, well, I don't need the movie because I just saw the trailer, just saw a preview. No, the preview and the trailer is to attract us to the real thing, which is the movie. And so the coming soon, we don't fall in love with the coming soon. It stirs us up to wait for the real thing. That's the movie coming. That's what happened in the Old Testament with the blood of animals. It was a shadow of the substance of the real thing which came in Christ Jesus. It brings us a new way. It brings us new life. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 14, it says, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Watch what the blood of Jesus, the blood work of Jesus. It says it's, he did it once. He did it for all. And that's what I try to get across to us. He did it once. He did it once. Y'all, in in the holy place, in the tent of meetings, they would bring those animals every day because people sinned every day. So when somebody sinned, something had to die. So they go every day to the to the priest. And they have different sections where people were running up so that the animal may be sacrificed every day. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the chief priest would go beyond that curtain into the presence of God and sacrifice that goat. Because every year people would sin and every year he would come back. He'd come back the next year and year after year because people kept sinning. But when Jesus went into the heavenly holy of holies, Jesus shed his blood once because the blood of Jesus is so powerful. His blood work is so awesome that it forgives every sin you've done in the past. It forgives the sin you're thinking about right now. And the blood of Jesus forgives the sin that you might do next week. And he only had to die once because his blood is so powerful. It reaches to the highest mountain. His blood flows, flows to the uh, lowest valley. His blood will never, ever lose its power because he did it once because that's all he needed to do it. And he did it 
for all. When Jesus died on the cross, y'all, he died to save everybody. Now, I will quickly say that Jesus did not save everybody by dying, but he did die to save everybody. I don't care what sins you've committed. I don't care where what mistakes you've made. I don't care what lie you told. I don't care what you smoked, what you drank. I don't care who you ran. I don't care what sin you committed in your life. Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. He died for everybody. But again, even though he died to save everybody, everybody didn't get saved by his dying because you still got to put your faith in Jesus. There's a group called Universalist out of the religion, Universalism. And they believe because of the faithfulness of Jesus' death on the cross that now everybody gets to go to heaven because Jesus was so faithful. No, that's not what the word of God teaches us. You know, everybody talking about heaven ain't going. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what the word teaches us, Hebrews chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised you from dead, you shall be saved. So it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus died to save everybody, but you got to receive the work that he did by faith. So the blood sacrifice of Jesus once for all and forever, it's eternal that God provides for us eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. When you put your faith in the blood sacrifice of Jesus, not only does he forgive you, and he saves you, but it is eternal. It is forever. Somebody asked me, do I believe in the eternal security of believers? And of course, my answer is yes. I believe in the eternal security of believers. And I also believe in the insecurity of unbelievers. Y'all, when Jesus saves us, we get in the hand of Jesus. John chapter 10. Jesus is in the hand of God. And then in Ephesians 4, all that's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the blood work of Jesus has given us now the salvation that we need once for all forever. Now, what do we do with that? Since we know Christ has made that kind of sacrifice and we put our faith in him uh, to be saved. Now, what do we do with that? Well, here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. And it says in verse 22. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with the pure water. He says, fully trusting Jesus. It is our faith in all the work Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection. Now let us by faith access the presence of God. That's what that curtain was all about. I told you in the holiest place, only the high priest could go beyond that curtain. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And it made access for any and everybody by faith to enter into the presence of God. Now, I want to tell you the context for the book of Hebrews. The writer was writing to Hebrew Christians that were. They were facing persecution. You know, they were in oppression. They were being arrested for stuff they never should have been arrested for. They were dealing with social injustice. They were dealing with poverty. It was hard time. They were suppressed by the Roman government. It was a, it was a very difficult time for them. 
And Jesus says that even in that difficult time, here's what we need to do because of what Jesus did on Calvary. That we need by faith, our trust, our confidence, our belief in God to access God's presence. And he's not just talking about going into the, the place of God because some will argue that by the time the writer Hebrews wrote this, that the temple had already been destroyed. So that place was not there. He's talking about entering into the presence of God. There's a difference between going to God's place and entering into God's presence. You know, there's a difference between a location and a dimension. Jesus met a woman at the well. And as he had this conversation with her, uh, she, the more Jesus talked to her, the more she thought he was a preacher. She went on to believe he was the Christ, but initially she thought, He's got to be a preacher. Listen to how he's talking about everlasting life and the Holy Spirit. And she said, since you're a preacher, I have a question. She did like a lot of people do when they run into somebody, find out they're a preacher. They ask us a whole lot of questions. And the question she asked Jesus, thinking he was a preacher, she said, well, the, the Jews say we're supposed to worship on Mount Zion. But the Samaritans say we're supposed to worship on Mount Garrison. You a preacher? What do you think? Jesus said, there's coming a day and that day is already here where it really doesn't matter which mountain you worship on, but they that worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said the most important part is not the location. It's the dimension, not the location. It's the disposition to worship God in spirit and in truth, to not just show up in his place, but y'all to enter into his presence. And if those scholars are right, that the temple had been torn down and the people couldn't get to his place anyway, the Hebrew writer said, you can still get in his presence. And even in the times in which we live and the crisis we're dealing with, all of us can't get to the place of God, but you can still get in the presence of God. And don't think that everybody's in his presence. That's, that's too much universalism for me. I don't believe that. Everybody's not in the presence of God. People say, well, God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere. That doesn't mean you're in his presence. The Hebrew writer said it is by faith that we enter into the presence of God. It is the, our faith and confidence and trust in, in Jesus that gets us the access beyond that curtain into the presence of God. Uh, I'm, I'm still very low tech and I, I, I will admit I've learned more about technology in the last four weeks than I've learned in the last four years. And my, my sons actually were part of the crew that insisted that I'd move to the 21st century and start using technology. So they made me buy an iPhone and they made me buy uh, an iPad. They wanted me to use technology. So I started using, I started putting my sermons on it and uh, manuscripts that I'm writing for books and uh, ministry ideals and uh, phone numbers and addresses and connections I have. And it dawned on me, I'm putting all this stuff in an iPad and an iPhone. And I told my sons, I said, man, wait a minute. Now something, this phone could die and I'm, I'm going to lose all this information that I'm putting in here. I need this thing backed up. How do I back it up? And my son said, Dad, you don't have to worry about backing it up. It's already backed up. I said, no, it's not backed up. I haven't done anything. They said, no, the moment you put it in your iPhone, it goes to your iCloud. It's backed up. I said, I don't see any iCloud. Where's the iCloud? Where my stuff? They said, Dad, even though you don't see the iCloud, the iCloud is there. And your information that you put in it no matter where you are, no matter what time of day it is, that you can access it at any time. But you have to have the right device. Yeah, it's that right device 
that gets us the access to the iCloud. Now, let me tell you what happened when Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage from Egypt heading to Canaan, the promised land. They were led with a pillar of cloud by day, and that cloud represented the presence of God. Y'all, Apple didn't come up with that cloud. Apple just caught up with the Bible. Even in the days of Moses, there was a cloud. It was the Shekinah glory of God, that cloud that led them by day. And that pillar of cloud represented the presence of God. And the only way to access that cloud, that presence of God, you got to have the right device. Why do you get that with the iCloud? You got to have a device to get to that cloud, but you don't get that with the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God. You got to have the right device. That device is faith. Let us with faith enter into the presence of almighty God. And then, then in verse 23, it says Hebrews 10 and 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Hallelujah to the lamb. We don't just have faith to get into God's presence, but we have hope to hang on to the promises of God. God has made us some promises. I don't care if it's sunshine or rain, if it's good times or bad, the, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But sometimes it can get so difficult and hard that some of us fall prey to what's called apostasy of falling away falling away from God or falling away from Christ and his church. That's what the Hebrew writer was writing about that in that persecution, in that social injustice, in that crisis they were in, that there was some, some young believers, not young in age, but young in the faith. They were turning their back on Christ and the church and the kingdom of God. And they were, they were falling away. They were moving away. And so the writer said, no, let's use our hope to hang on to the promises of God even in hard times. Y'all hope is the expectation things are going to get better. Hope is believing God is going to make a difference. Hope is believing that God is going to show up and turn things around. We have to hang on to that hope. Y'all, if hope dies, the progress stops. If hope dies, the struggle ceases. If hope dies, people turn to drugs and alcohol. If hope dies, people turn their back on Christ and the church. You got to keep hope alive to believe that God will show up and use that hope even in hard times, to hold on to the promises of God, to know that God is going to show up and do everything he said he's going to do. It was in 2004 that Petra Nimkova, she's like a supermodel, she's internationally known, Petra Nimkova. And she was over in Thailand uh, with her fiance at the time, I think it was in a, during the Christmas season. And they were over there on vacation and they were having a good time. And that's when that 2004, that ocean Indian earthquake took place. A tsunami hit over there and it affected Asia and it affected Africa and I believe India as well. And more than 100,000 people died when that earthquake under the ocean picked that water up and rushed it to the shore. But Petra Nemkova, who was over there, she survived it. More than 100,000 people died, including her fiance. And the reporters were trying to figure out how in the world did you survive a tsunami when everybody, and she was saying that the tsunami came so fast, that water was pouring in so fast that people were running, trying to find shelter and running, trying to get in their homes and running, trying to get in hotels. She said, but I didn't run to try to find shelter. 
She said, what I did, I ran and found a tree. And Petra Nemkova said she held on to that tree for eight hours until that tsunami subsided. Eight hours she held on to a tree. Other people got hurt, but she held on to the tree. People died, but she held on to the tree. She lost her fiance during that time, but she held on to the tree. She broke her pelvis. She broke other parts of her body. Her bones were breaking. Her leg was broken. But in all that brokenness, she survived because she held on to a tree during the hard times. And I know you, if you read scripture, you remember what Peter said when he wrote his letter. He said that Jesus died on a tree. And y'all in hard times when we're overwhelmed and seemingly overcome by things rushing into our lives. When other people are being hurt, people around us, even those we care for are dying. And we're experiencing brokenness. If we hold on to the tree that Jesus died on, that tree of Calvary, hold on to your hope, to, to, to the promises of God, even in crisis, and I promise you, God's going to do everything that he said he's going to do. Let me give you one more. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Since Jesus died on the cross, he gave us access to, his, to God's presence. He, he made good on his promises. We could hold on to the tree. The blood of Jesus has changed us, given us a new way and a new life. What do we do? He says, use that love to motivate, to encourage, to build up the people of God. Yo, this is not the time to just operate on your own by yourself, just you and Jesus, and you don't need nobody else. He said, no. This is the time for love to be expressed, to have good works and blessings, acts towards others. That's what love is all about. Love is not a feeling that I feel that I never felt before. That's not love. Love is evaluate need. Love is seeing what's happening in the lives of other people and coming alongside them to be a blessing to them in the hard times, to be a blessing to others in the crisis. To make sure we encourage others. It's, it's not just about faith. And it's not just about hope. It's about love. And I know why that Hebrew writer put that in there. Because you can have faith all by yourself. You don't have to, you don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to call anybody. Just you and Jesus. You can have faith all by yourself. You can have hope all by yourself. The expectation that God is going to show up. And God's going to do something for me. You can have hope all by yourself. But when it comes to love. Can't do that by yourself. You need somebody else. You got to have other people. He says, I want you to love. That's why in the very next verse, Hebrews 10 to 25, he said, and forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some do. Even when they couldn't physically get to the temple, he said, no, don't stop coming together. You're the body of Christ. I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand how people can talk about this relationship they have with Christ and the relationship they have with the kingdom of God, but a disconnect with the church. Y'all, if you got, if you following Jesus, you're going to have to go to church sometime. You got to connect. You cannot forsake the assembly yourselves together. If you follow in Jesus, Jesus spent time in the church when he was eight days old. He was consecrated in the church when he was 12 years old. He was in the temple, in the church, talking to the leaders. And then he went on to say, I must be about my father's business. That was in the church. And when Jesus started his earthly ministry, y'all, he started it 
in a synagogue where he went in and he opened a book and he began to read Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. He, he, spent, he did that in the church. The man with the withered hand, Jesus healed it. That was in the church. The woman bent over for 18 years and Jesus straightened out her life. That was in the church. And even when Jesus, during what we call Holy Week, rolled that donkey into Jerusalem and people praised him and glorified him and pulled palm leaves down. Right after that, he went straight to the temple, right into the church. Because if you following Jesus, you're going to show up in the church. And Jesus' promise was this. When I come back, and I am coming back, I'm only coming back for one thing. That's a church without spot or blemish. It is during these difficult times. We need to have our faith to get in the presence of God, our hope to hang on to the promises of God, and our love to be a blessing to other people. Demonstrate the love of God through you by being a blessing to somebody in these hard times. Let me close this out. The whole thing is about the blood work of Jesus and how we can have that right relationship with him. One of my favorite illustrations about this, uh, the, the blood work of Jesus is, is Adrian Rogers told it. He was talking about when 911, uh, when those terrorists flew those planes into the World Trade Center, there was a, a woman who worked in New York at the World Trade Center, but she lived, she was staying in a hotel. She's from another state, stayed in a hotel, but she was working at the World Trade Center. The morning that the terrorists did their thing, she come down out of her hotel room, jumped in her car, and she was on her way to work at the World Trade Center. And on her way to work, her nose began to bleed. It, it bled profusely and blood was all over her blouse. And as she looked at herself, she said, I can't go to work covered in all of this blood. And so she made a U-turn. She turned around, went back to the hotel so she could change her blouse. And she said that when she opened the door to her hotel room, she had left the television on. And that's when she saw that first plane fly into that tower. And of course it collapsed. Then the other one, another plane, and it collapsed. More than 3,000 people died that day. And here's what that woman said. I would have died with the rest of them had I not been covered in all of this blood. That's my testimony today. That I was on my way to hell, no God on my side, no heaven in my view, too mean to live, but I wasn't ready to die. My life was messed up. But then I put my faith in the blood work of Jesus. And I would die and go to hell with everybody else, except I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the same thing can happen to you if you put your faith in his blood work. I don't care what you've done, the mistakes you've made. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Who can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how precious is that flow? It makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know is nothing but the blood of Jesus. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. That blood will never, ever lose its power. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flow, lose all their guilt and stain. I thank God for the blood work of Jesus.